Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a um, prophecy update. Normally, we're in Matthew, but we're going to take a little bit of break from Matthew. And so um, anything going on this week in current events, things, anybody think of anything? Maybe. Damascus. So there, there are a couple things about biblical prophecy that I want to share with you guys today. I was having a um, conversation with somebody in church this week, and um, you know, I was I, I I do prophecy updates, but I normally do them on Wednesday nights. And so, if you don't normally come on a Wednesday night, you don't get to hear the prophecy updates. So, not that I've never done some on Sunday morning, but I I mostly reserve that for Wednesday nights. And um, I said, you know what, I'm going to do one on Sunday morning because of where we are. And for this other reason, as I was talking to this person, I said, you know, I'll bet you, I said, I wonder how many people in our church are familiar with Isaiah 17.1 and what it says. And and, um, it's one of the as Christians, this is simple stuff in, in the area of biblical prophecy that we should be familiar with. And I said, everybody, I'm sure, is real familiar with Isaiah 17.1. But there might be like maybe one person I said, uh, maybe I said two or three or 80 percent of you that probably don't know what Isaiah 17.1 says. So for that reason, um, want to talk about um, biblical prophecy and go over a few things today. And uh so kind of answer the question, what in the world is going on? Anybody want to know that? Well, basically what's going on in a nutshell is that we are racing towards the end times. We are racing towards a time that Jesus described as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And the signs of the end times that Jesus gives us in Matthew 24, he says that they'll, um, they'll increase in intensity and in, anybody know? Frequency. Just like the labor pains upon a pregnant woman. When a woman gets pregnant, her first contraction is um, at 30 minutes apart. And then they're 20 minutes apart and, and more and more severe. And Jesus uses this exact analogy to describe what the end times will be like. And we're seeing that today. So all of these ominous things we're seeing around the world that are lining up with exactly what the Bible says is going to happen. They're, they're like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now, I think it's good. So this is um, what Jesus said. Jesus said, when you see these things, the key word here, beginning to happen, then lift your eyes for your redemption draws nigh. Now, some people like to read this verse as when you see these things beginning to happen, move to Montana, make bullets on the weekends, dig a hole, get get prepped. Store food, and if somebody comes and tries to get your food, shoot them in Jesus' name. I don't know. I've never figured out how that plan was going to work for you preppers who have the idea that when these things begin to happen, that and not that it's not good to have some provisions, but listen, Jesus said, when you begin to see these things happen, this was his opportunity to tell you to hide and dig a hole and prepare for the future. But instead of telling you to do that, he said, lift your eyes for your redemption draws nigh. Listen, you don't need to worry about these things. You're not going to be here. If you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ and you are the bride of Christ, Jesus is coming for his bride before the wrath of God is poured out upon a Christ rejecting world. 
You know, some people say that, that the tribulation, this rapture that maybe some of you might not even be familiar with that doctrine, we'll talk about a little bit today, happens in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period at the end. But, you know, we, we are as the church, the bride of Christ. How many of you brides, raise your hand when I'm done. If you met somebody who proposed to you and then he beat you up for three and a half years before he married you, would you, would you marry him? Right? Like that makes no sense that God's going to beat us up for three and a half years and then take his bride. He's going to take us before the wrath of God. And so, um, <clears throat> so a couple things, when you see these things, lift your eyes for your redemption draws near. Now, what, why do we study biblical prophecy? And the reason why I want to start here is because, um, there, there was a pastor who was speaking to a group of pastors and he said, and I was in the group and he said, um, you guys need to stop beating on your prophecy drum. He said, this next generation, I don't even know what to call them now. I get confused. Generation X or generation millennial or, you know, I call my house generation vidiots. But um, <laughs> like, well, I don't even know what we do. Or, you know, maybe I could be nice generation glowing face. And that's not a compliment. You know, when your face is glowing, it's, it's, it's not good because that means you're staring at your screen. But, um, but. This generation, they don't want to hear all that ominous stuff about the end of the world and Bible prophecy. And, you know, that's not going to reach the young folks in your church. <sighs> He's lucky I wasn't on stage. I ought to... No, I'm just kidding. Thankfully, I don't listen to, you know, that, that, that that's just so far, you guys, from what the Bible teaches. Listen, Jesus talked about prophecy. Jesus said it was important. A third of the Bible is prophetic. Prophecy is what separates us from your neighbors. The fact that the Bible tells you the beginning from the end. When you share some of these things, Lydia was just telling me this week that with these attacks going on in Syria, the conversation came up and some people she was talking to were confused and worried. And, and she was able to tell them, well, the Bible says blah, 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 blah. And their ears go like this. Like as soon as you, you, you talk about the Bible predicts what's going to happen and, and, and that you're safe or that this immediately it's such a witness tool for you to know biblical prophecy and and people are interested in that and a lot of people you guys a lot of our friends a lot of our neighbors a lot of people that are not christians they didn't grow up and they are afraid i think it was caleb was telling me and, and one of the kids it was when they were in another in the elementary school in overlake one of the kids in the school his family literally had in their house the zombie apocalypse uh, evacuation plan and, and model. And the kids would literally roll around on the floor and pop up in front of the windows with their guns, like prepping for a zombie apocalypse. Okay. All right. But, you know, to know exactly what's going to happen and what the Bible says, you won't have to prep for a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Because Jesus is coming. And so, um, so prophecy is good for that. Okay, now I got to move on because we got lots and lots and lots of stuff to cover today. Okay. Um, another thing biblical prophecy does is biblical prophecy gives you a heavenly perspective. Okay. You guys got, are you guys writing this stuff down? Get out your pens and your papers or fake it for me. Okay. Get out your phones and play uh, Candyland or whatever you play and pretend like you're taking notes and I'll feel good about myself. So um, when the Apostle Paul, listen, the Apostle Paul believed that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. Now, let me tell you something about the about Jesus coming back. 
The entire Old Testament leading up to Messiah coming was a prophecy that that God was going to send a Messiah. And what happened in a manger in Bethlehem? God sent a Messiah. And then that that Messiah died and and he rose again and the disciples were there staring into heaven and angels appeared to the disciples and said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who, who you saw go up, he will do what? He will come back again. Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will Come again and bring you unto myself. And so the, the entire Old Testament, God was going to bring Messiah. The entire New Testament theme, Messiah is coming back. You know, the world sometimes to because one of the tactics they use against Christians is they they try to insult your intelligence and belittle you. And one of the areas that they're going to attack you on is if you believe Jesus is coming back, like you're ignorant or you're 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 a fanatical Christian. I want to tell you something. You, you really can't be a Christian at all. If, if you don't have a basic belief and understanding that the Jesus is coming back, you can't read the New Testament as a child and not find. I can't even count them. There's so many times that the Bible eludes to the fact and says directly or indirectly that Jesus is coming back. Amen. So studying biblical prophecy, it keeps you in in that in that mind frame and ready and then, and then Peter tells us that the world is going to mock you and I because we're saying Jesus comes back. And Peter says in the last days, they're going to say, oh, you, you know, the scoffers are going to say, Jesus is not coming back. And you know how we know he's not coming back? Because he hasn't come back yet. And you've been saying he's going to be, he's coming back for all these years and he's still not here. That's how we know. That's the stupidest logic I ever heard. But that's what they say. He's not coming back. You know how we know? Because he hasn't happened yet. Okay, so um, Paul believed that Jesus was coming back in his life. Spurgeon, Luther, Martin Luther, who lived in the 1500s, believed Jesus was coming back in his life. Spurgeon and Moody, who lived in the 1900s, born in the 1800s, lived in the 1900s, believed Jesus was coming back in their life. Two greats just died in the last couple of years, believing that Jesus would come back in their life. Chuck Smith and um, and Billy Graham all believed that Jesus was coming back in their life. You can listen to old tapes of Billy Graham or Chuck Smith preaching and telling you that without a doubt, Jesus will come back in their lifetime. Now, all these men died without Jesus coming back. But I want to tell you something. Put me in the class with any of those men any day. Let me let me die saying that I believe that Jesus was coming back in my lifetime because it, John tells us that God, the, the apostle John says it purifies how you live. And as I look around, some of you guys could use some purification in your living. Right. Myself included, especially that, that, that if you live every day believing that Jesus could come back, maybe it affects how you live. And that's what John says it does. How many of you guys want to get caught with your hand in the cookie jar when Jesus comes back? Right? How many of you guys want to get caught with your pants down when Jesus comes back? None of us. It's embarrassing. And so living with an expectancy and a readiness that Jesus could come back at any moment, it purifies how you live. And I want to tell you that, that biblically, nothing more needs to happen for Jesus Christ to return prophetically. It's all done. It's all been fulfilled. Every part of it. So, so that's another reason why we study biblical prophecy. Um, it reminds us that God's in control and it just helps us to know that, that God told the beginning from the end. And then and then God, listen, God wants you to 
know what, um, turn to Isaiah 46 really quickly. Isaiah wants you to know, I'm sorry, God wants you to know what's happening. What's great is that Jesus said, I call you friends. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And I've done nothing that I haven't spoken or revealed to you first. And all that the father has given me, I have given to you. And so Jesus told us that he's going to keep us apprised of what's going on. And he wants us to know. In Isaiah 46, God says in verse number nine, remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So if you have friends that think they're going to become like a God, show them Isaiah 46, nine. And then in verse 10, it says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. It's God's pleasure to tell you the end from the beginning. And, and so God is, you know what God is going to tell you? And the fact that, that the Bible prophetically is accurate and true. And, and according to the fact that there's a Jew and the Bible prophesied a Jew and a Jew in a homeland today that we live in. is testimony that the word of God is absolutely true. You find one prophecy in the Bible that fails, throw it away. Take it and flush it in the toilet. Call a plumber because I'm flushing it down the toilet. And not yet one prophecy fails in the Bible. And God's going to perform those according to the zeal of the host, the Lord says. And then um, the last thing is, you know, one of the things that's going to happen today, hopefully, is I'll shake you up a little bit. Shake you up a little bit in what's going on in the world and where you are in your faith. But that's good for you. It's healthy that that these things of prophecy as we study and that they do shake us up because the reality is as sure as the day is long, it is going to happen one day. So if you live with the idea that the apostle Paul believed it and, and Luther believed it and Spurgeon believed it and Billy Graham believed it and it never happened in their life, I'm going to make it to the end of my life before it happens. That's a mistake because it's going to one day surely happen. Jesus will come. And so it's good to be shaken up and be ready. Now let's look at Matthew 24 real quick. Try to jam through some of this stuff. I'm going to focus on Isaiah 17 and Ezekiel 36 through 38 today, but I need to set it up with this. So in Matthew 24, now if you're a student of biblical prophecy, and once you start learning biblical prophecy, it gets real contagious and you start watching current events and, and you, you know, and people are calling me on this week. I got several calls from some of our prophecy buffs here in our church saying, Hey, let's, you know, do you see this? And this is going on and, and it gets really exciting. And, and as we talk about prophecy, now, one of the things we do, listen, I just want to be really clear up front with biblical prophecy. What we do is we look at the geopolitical landscape and we see where the pieces of the puzzle are moving. And then we go to the Bible and we, we find the, the scriptures that, that line up that, that, that say these things were going to happen before they happened. Now, one of the mistakes that people make in biblical prophecy is they have the prophecy in the Bible and then the geopolitical scheme and the pawns and the players on the chessboard, they aren't all exactly in the right place to fit the biblical prophecy. So what they do is they tweak the verse a little bit. They make it, they stretch it a little bit to fit what's going on in the world. Now, I want you to follow this now, um, but that's wrong because what's going on in the world is going to change to line up with the word of God. So if we see something in the Bible and it's not lining up just yet out there, don't tweak what the Bible says, as some people mistakenly do, because they want to be sensationalist or they want something to fit. Just wait, because the political landscape eventually is going to line up to exactly what the Bible says. 
But again, that is the art of studying and knowing biblical prophecy. And sometimes, listen, as more information comes, we realize that something we we thought before, we might have got it wrong. And we weren't necessarily dogmatic. This is the way it's going to go down. But we were we were trying to do that. But that's part of what we do. We, we take what the word of God says and then we, we we look for those things in the world. And when we see them, we try to identify them. The, the ones that we're going to identify today, I'm pretty sure, are undeniable. These aren't ones that you got to tweak very far. They're 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 very clear. Um, so Matthew 24, look at verse number three. It says, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Somebody look at your neighbor and say, thank you, Peter. I know that's not Peter, but we're just going to thank him anyway. So we're thanking Peter. Aren't you glad that Peter or the disciples asked Jesus this very pointed, very clear question here in Matthew chapter 24? Jesus, they understood something. Now, disciples missed a ton, right? Like these guys were knuckleheads about a lot of things and they didn't get a lot of things. But one thing they got was that Jesus was coming back. And so they come to him and they say, well, when will this happen and when will be the end of the age? And then Matthew 24 is what we call the Olivet Discourse. So again, if you're into biblical prophecy, you have to be very familiar with Matthew 24. Also repeated for us in Luke 22, the same um, Olivet Discourse. So I got to skip some of that, but let's just look real quickly. I want to bring your attention to verse 32. And it says, are you there? Matthew 24, 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. Now I'm telling you, the fig tree is the nation of Israel. Sometimes in um, biblical idioms, typologies, they, they can be a little confusing because sometimes they mean one thing and other times they mean another thing. The fig tree in the Bible, every time it's mentioned, is the nation of Israel, 100% of the time. Unequivocally, without a doubt, the fig tree is the nation of Israel, okay? So Jesus said, when you see the fig tree bud, and when its branches already become tender and put forth leaves, you know summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. Okay, so um, Jesus said that the, the generation that sees the fig tree rebutting will be the generation that will be here during the last days, during the end times, during the return. So when did the nation of Israel, when were they reborn? May 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel miraculously under the sentiment, world sentiment of the Holocaust after um, Nazi Germany kills six million Jews, Israel becomes a nation. May 14th, 1948. And that prophecy, this prophecy of Jesus begins and the generation, this generation will be the generation that will see the coming. How many, anybody in here born in 1948? On 48? So watch that guy right there. Okay. So that's the generation when he starts getting sick or, you know, listen, he, um, so he'll be, he'll be 70 this year. Okay. We'll be 70 this year. So in May of 2018, the nation of Israel will turn 70 years old. Okay. And so, um, you, you know why, why folks, they, they try to date set and where it comes from. It comes from this verse. One of the famous ones, and some of you guys, unless you were born in 48, like this gentleman, you won't remember this. No, some of you younger folks may still remember it. But um, 
Hal Lindsey writes a book in 1988, the, the late great planet Earth. And the book is 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. How did he come up with 1988? Well, um, in the Bible, there's three versions of a generation. And you can't really be dogmatic. Scholars go back and forth. And I don't know where I land. I kind of land on the 70. Um, because the Bible says it's given to a man 70 years to live. And, um, and then the judgment. Anything past that is a gift. But, but you could make a, a real scholarly case for a, a biblical generation being 40 years, 70 years, or 100 years. So what Hal Lindsey did, and a lot of folks did, was they took 1948, and they said the generation that sees this will be here when Jesus comes back. So 1948 plus 40, a biblical generation equals what? Are you guys all right? You guys need to do the wave and wake up? 1988, 1988, so they said Jesus has got to come back in 1988. And then 1988 passes, and let me warn you guys what's going to happen in May or as we get close to September of this year, because now we're reaching the 70-year mark exactly. This is what folks are going to say. This is what your YouTube videos are going to say. Jesus is coming back in 19 or 2018. 2018 is going to be the prediction of the return of Jesus Christ. I wish folks would just do me one little simple favor. Read verse 36, folks. Can you guys read? Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. These folks that think they know when Jesus is coming back, who do they think they are? The angels don't even know. Like, dude, let me let me let me scrub your shoes. You're really special, man. Like the angels don't even know when Jesus is coming back, but you do. Man, you got any cookies? I want to eat those things. So um, nobody knows. So don't ever let anybody tell you they know when Jesus is coming back. But as we've already, listen, as we've already said, what Jesus does say in verse 37, he says, or he says, but as the days of Noah were also the son of coming, a son of man will be for as the days They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then he says, watch, therefore, in verse 32, you do not know what the hour is coming. Um, And and he says that you will know the times and the seasons. Okay, Jesus said it's like labor pains on a pregnant woman. Paul tells us the same things. You don't know the day or the hour, but of the times and seasons you shall know. So God wants you to know. He wants you to be ready. He, he got after the apostles because they missed it. And he told them, like, you're ostriches with your heads in the sand because you should be able to know these things. I've given you all the clues. It's all there. So the day and the hour, we don't know. Just like a pregnant woman. If a pregnant woman is 39 weeks pregnant and a, and a, and a pregnancy, right, technically lasts 40 weeks. So, you know, now pretty soon she's going to have the baby. But you don't know it's Tuesday at 346. But you can see that she's great with child. You could tell by her waddle. Just kidding. That was bad. All right. So. All right. So turn to Isaiah 17, uh, verse 1. So this is a prophecy that um, my dad, Lydia's dad, my pastor, he's been telling me for 20 years, keep your eye on Damascus. It's the key to biblical prophecy. And I say, why, dad? And I say, you got to read Isaiah 17, 1. So let's read it. What does it say? 
It says the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city. It will be a ruinous heap. Joel Rosenberg, one of my favorite authors and and Jewish theologians who wrote commentary on Ezekiel 37 and 38 and is the just released a new book. He's a fiction author and he writes commentary on biblical prophecy. He was in the White House recently and Mike Pence wanted to ask him about this particular verse. And 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 so what are your thoughts? And 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 Isaiah 17:1 is as clear as the day is long. It's also repeated in Jeremiah. Just write this down. I'm not going to read it because we're out of time. 49 um, verses 23 through 27. The second prophecy in the Bible that Damascus will be destroyed. My pastor was telling me 20 years ago, keep your eye on Damascus. Well, 20 years ago, it wasn't as exciting as it is today. And today, Damascus is absolutely under fire. Now, um, there's a city in Damascus called Homs, Syria. Okay, and it's not in Damascus, I'm sorry, in Syria called Homs. It's another large, large city like Damascus, and it has been under civil war. Now, it's a little bit kind of under the radar right now, but it wasn't that long ago that that you and I and that our nation was hot on the Syrian refugee crisis, right? There was two million residents of Syria that had left their country. And, and, and everybody's fighting over what are we going to do with them and where are they going to go and who's going to welcome them. But, but did, did any of us really kind of think, and I don't think we did in the West here too much, ask the question, where did they come from and why did they leave where they were? And, and have I seen what happened to where they were and what's going on? Now, let me show you some pictures of um, one of the largest cities in, in the country, Syria. It's called Homs. Let's just take a look at it. It's going to take me a quick second. Oh, sorry. Uh-oh. How do I go back? Is that it? There we go. Oh, try again. It worked in the first service. There we go. Let's Let's open it in YouTube. That way we can... That's the next one. I'm going to show you a clip from that one, too. This is called Home Syria. And this is a result of the, the war that's taking place in Syria today. You guys realize this is going on? You want to know where two million Syrian refugees came from? It's part of it. This is a war between Bashar al-Assad and uh, and the rebels. Civil war in Syria. It's a huge city. I wish I had some pre-pictures of what that would look like. Blow your mind. Thriving city. Boulevards and streets and lights and people and... Wait till they, I think it takes a second, but they're going to broaden out. You're going to see the size of the city. And it all looks that way. No people, just destroyed. Now, if that was Damascus, Syria, Isaiah 17.1 would be what? Fulfilled. So this this is the scene all over Syria today. Again, this is, this is a, just a taste 
But parts, even parts of Damascus look this way too, where the destruction has already happened. And so this week, we, um, we are, United States is bombing in Damascus. Now, if we're bombing just in Syria, we, um, not as exciting or not as a, a direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy as if when we're bombing in Damascus itself, because the prophecy in Isaiah 17:1 concerns the city of Damascus. And I can promise you, according to God's word, that one day Damascus will look, look at that. Did you see that, that outside look of how that city was? I, I can promise you that one day Damascus, Syria will look exactly like that. So the, the second thing you need to understand, a biblical prophecy, a basic biblical prophecy. Now, hopefully, right, everybody in our church now, right, if you say you come to Calvary Chapel, you know what Isaiah 17.1 is all about, right? No, that, that, that Isaiah 17.1 has prophesied for thousands of years that Damascus, which is the oldest inhabited city in the world, one day will be a ruinous heap and that will be fulfilled. So keep your eye on Damascus because it's a key to biblical, one of the keys to biblical prophecy. Now, the other thing, if I can draw your attention to Ezekiel 37, 36, 37, 38, 39. Now, listen, I cannot, um, I could spend um, months, years studying Isaiah 36 through 39. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36 through 39 and what we, we commonly know as the rebirth of Israel and the Gog and Magog invasion. The Gog and Magog invasion is what I want to focus on today and it is yet future, okay? Isaiah 36 is, um, Isaiah 36 is the healing of the land. Isaiah 37 is the rescue of the people. Isaiah 38, Ezekiel, guys, I'm sorry. When I say Isaiah, I just... Say Ezekiel, I guess. I don't know. Israel safe and secure in, in 38, prosperous in their own land. And then 39 is the details of the battle and the spoils of war for Israel. So we have um, Benjamin Netanyahu said in an, in, an, in an address in Poland that Isaiah or Ezekiel 36 was fulfilled before your very eyes. When was Ezekiel 36 fulfilled? Ezekiel 36 says that the nation of Israel that was dispersed all over the world, that they were dead, that God is going to raise them up and dry bones are going to live again. May 14, 1948, against all odds, God brings Israel back to its original land and they become a nation again. Fulfilled. Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 37, God begins Aliyah, where the, 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 the Jewish people from all over the world, God begins to call them back. And just a couple of years ago, there are now more people living in Israel, more Jews living in Israel than in other places. And, and, and Aliyah is continued as God brings them back. In Ezekiel 38, so 36, 37 done, Ezekiel 38, it describes a battle. Let's just look at a few verses of Ezekiel 30, um, 38. And it says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face against Gog and the land of Magog against the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, your horses, your horsemen, your splendid, your clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields and the handling swords. Verse five, pay attention, Persia, which is Iran. And as you know, um, 
Iran is only recently name changed to Iran. Iran, for all the centuries, has been known as Persia up until I don't know when they changed their name. I think in the, in this century, last century. So those are Persians. You know, it's funny with um, with Iran. Um, Iran. See, we over here we don't know the difference. I think there was an old country song, right? It was like I don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran, or Iraq and Iran. And by the way, you know, you talk to somebody from Iran and you say, how do you say it? Iran or Iran? They say Iran, Iraq. So that's why we say it that way. But, um, but we don't know the difference, but there's a huge difference between people in Iran. They have like a cultural pride. Like they're not Arab, they're Persian. Okay. That'd be like, you know, when I was growing up, there was a big difference, you know, in my neighborhood between somebody who was Mexican and somebody who was from South America or Latin America. You know, I'd tell one of my friends from Guatemala or, you know, Nicaragua, you know, are you Mexican? I'm not Mexican, man. I'm from South America. Or I tell one of my Mexican friends, oh, you Latin? No, I'm Mexican, homie. So it was like, there, there's a, there's a difference, you know, and it's kind of insulting and, you know, the call one the other, you know, and so the, the, the same applies. People from Iraq are, um, are Arab. People from Saudi Arabia are Arab. Iran are Persian. And, and so they, they're, they're, they're just different. And um, I, think, well, I think it'll come up again. And I'm kind of watching my clock, trying to run out of time. But um, just so you know, the, there's, there's a, a fight going on in the Middle East. Like they're fighting each other. Like among the Muslims, there's the Bloods and the Crips. And, and they, they're battling all the time. So Saudi Arabia, they're Sunni Muslim. And, and, and Iran, they're Shiite Muslims. And so they, they, they believe a lot of the same things, same book, same Quran. The difference has to do with um, their eschatology or what they believe about the end times. Now, Iran and Shiite Muslims, they believe that... that that they have to usher in a caliphate or a holy war, which will then usher in the return of their, what they call the Mahdi or their Messiah. The Islamic Messiah is called a Mahdi or the 12th Imam. There's been 11 Imams through history and the 12th one is their Mahdi or their Messiah. And and that, that somewhat, you know, Mahdi is ashamed of Islam because they're not dominating the world. And, and in order for them to, to be worthy for the Mahdi or the Islamic um, Messiah to return, they have to create war and start fights and, and do things to, to dominate the rest of the world under the submissive hand of Islam, which will then usher the return of their Mahdi. And Iran is run by these kind of radical Muslims who want war and, and, and nuclear war and power and dominating because they want to usher in their, their Messiah. Now, the, the Saudis who control three things are afraid of Iran and don't like Iran. And we think, oh, they're all just kissing buddies over there. They're not. They, they, they don't get along. And Saudi Arabia, and what's interesting about this list here in Ezekiel 38, that lists these 10 nations that are going to come against Israel. Saudi Arabia is not mentioned. You would have never thought that in this list that Saudi Arabia would not have been a part until recently in the, polit- the geopolitical uh, landscape that we have today. Saudi Arabia is a friend of Israel. Their, their, new, their new king is, is pro-Israel and pro-West. And, and afraid of Iran because they're afraid if Iran uh, um, develops nuclear weapons that the Shiite Muslims want what Saudi Arabia has. And what does Saudi Arabia have? Three things. They have oil. They have Mecca and Medina. 
They have they have the two most or they have the two most holy sites in Islam. And Mecca is a big deal. And the 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 Persian Muslims, Shiite Muslims in Iran would love to control Mecca as a power, as a surge to to make them worthy for their Mahdi to come back. So it's it's a little bit of a like I said, a Crips and Bloods thing that's kind of going on over there um, in in the Middle East. But when this all unfolds, um, Saudi Arabia is not going to be a part. Now, I think I jumped a little detail that might help us help us figure out where we are. So in Ezekiel 38, those nations that are listed are going to attack Israel. That is one of the signs of the beginning of the seven year tribulation period. That is this time of the end, because Ezekiel says at the time of the end. So who are these 10 nations? Well, the the list is very clear for most of them. Some of them you could kind of mess with a little bit. But without a doubt, and without time to go into it today, Gog and the land of Magog and and the armies to the north, the far north. If you you take a, a map or if you have a globe and you get a string and you put a string line through Israel and you go directly north around your map, guess where you're going to land? In Moscow, right? Through the middle of Moscow, Russia. So Gog is the prince of Russia or the leader of Russia. And Magog is Russia. And it's very clear. It's very clear who Gog and Magog is. So Gog very possibly today could be Putin. And, and, and Magog is Russia. And Russia along with Persia and, and then um, Put. Put is Libya, northern Africa. Um, it says uh, Kush, or I'm sorry, it doesn't say Kush. It says um, Ethiopia, which the Hebrew word in verse five there is Kush, which is the Sudan, the northern part of Africa. What's what's consistent with the northern part of Africa today? They're all Muslim. That's all Muslim nations all the way across the north. Now, this was written by Ezekiel 1,200 years before Islam was ever a religion. 1,200 years before the prophet Muhammad ever lived and, and, and he didn't know that anything about Islam wasn't a, it wasn't a religion yet. And all of these nations, coincidentally, right, are Muslim nations. Even, you know, even in Russia, southern Russia is very Muslim. And, and a lot of the army um, comes from those areas. And much of the soldiers in the Russian army are Muslim. And so um, we have basically, we're just going to talk, we're just going to call it the big three because it's simple, simple and the easiest. But the big here in Ezekiel 38 that are going to attack Israel on the last day. So when you open up your paper one day and you read Russia, Iran, and, and, and Syria, or not Syria, Libya, attack Israel. Not Libya either. That's not the big three. Too many. Turkey, Turkey, Turkey. Sorry, guys. Too many names. Too many services. Russia, Iran, and Turkey attack Israel. Know that it's over. I used to say, put your head between your legs and kiss your butt goodbye. But that's, that's now I'm a senior pastor. I wouldn't say that anymore. Um, that was when I was a children's pastor. Um, but that is the beginning. Now what I should say is lift your eyes for your redemption draws nigh. And that battle has been prophesied for thousands of years. And up until you and I's lifetime, it would never make sense. Iran and Russia partners against Israel. Iran and Russia weren't, weren't friends and hated each other and warred with each other for so many years. But guess where Iran and Russia are today? They're in Syria. And they're fighting with, 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 
with the, the Syrian rebels. And Iran is there not because of interest in Syria. Russia's there because of Russia, and, and, and not to get it, I don't have much time. I'm gonna, um, Russia's there for lots of different reasons. Russia's there because they have political and economical reasons to be friends with Assad. They don't, they don't care about Assad or the Syrian people. But, but they, um, Russia supplies the, the natural gas to Europe. It's one of the best parts of the Russian economy is a natural gas supply to Europe. Syria has things that, that, that are in their interest for that. Do you know what Israel discovered in the last several years in Israel? The largest deposit of natural gas the world has ever seen. That threatens Russia. That threatens Russia's interest to Europe. If Israel were to open that up today and begin to sell it to Europe cheaper, it would cripple. It wouldn't cripple. It would hurt Russia's already struggling economy. And Putin has interests in the Middle East for different reasons. And besides the fact, without getting into it, who Putin himself is and what his kind of head game is and where his end game is. But, but Iran is not there for any of those reasons. Iran is there to get on Israel's border. Do you know how far Damascus, Syria is from, from the northern border of Israel? If you're in the Golan Heights and I'm standing on the, on the border and I step on a chair, I can see cars driving in Damascus from Israel. That's how far Damascus, Syria is from the border of Israel. They're, they're there. And, and a week ago, Iran arms a, a drone and sends it into Israel armed with weapons. And, and Israel intercepts it at the border and shoots it down. Iran is freaking out because the, the only way that Israel did that was because they had intelligence that it was coming. And how did they find out who told them? But Israel, as we know, they have the greatest um, intelligence department in the world. I think they have like, I don't know, something like God that like tells them things, you know, like, I don't know how they do it, but they, they, have, they know somebody that knows a lot of things and tells them stuff, you know, and they, they just amazing what they, what Israel does in the area of intelligence, knowing what's going on. It's, it has to be supernatural. So Israel shoots down this drone. Listen, listen, listen. This drone is armed with conventional weapons on its way. It's in, it's in Israel. This is another 9-11 on the way. We don't know what the target was. There was no way of finding out what the target was, but there was a civilian target somewhere in Israel that had this mission been successful. It would have been a 9-11 style attack, not to that scale, but without a doubt, a 9-11 style terrorist attack from Iran into Israel. And so Iran is um, setting up on Israel's border. So now we have Isaiah 17 um, and, and battle. And who knows how that could happen so many different ways, you guys. We, Israel and them could start fighting in Damascus. United States could get more involved or drawn in and in other countries. And somehow Damascus gets flattened. And when Damascus is flattened and, and, and Israel, I'm sorry, and Turkey and Iran and Russia are already there, a stone's throw from Israel, what are they going to do? They might as well just keep going. And it's prophesied it's going to happen. And it's right here. And so for the United States to be um, involved this week, um, I, I got to skip this one. I, I, oh, well, okay, can we go? Well, won't. Yeah. All right. We only got 10 So, okay. So, all right. So, 
No one comes to Israel's defense. Now, we, we know this. We've always, we've always understood this about this war, the Gog and Magog invasion. So in the Gog and Magog invasion, which again, as, as Ezekiel says, is the key to, Bibl- not the key, the beginning of the, 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 the beginning of the end, the mark of the beginning of the seven year tribulation period, not the, the mark. We'll talk about that in a minute, but part of it. But in the battle of Gog and Magog, one of the problems that you have as you try to understand biblical prophecy is how does Israel stand alone? How does the United States not come and help them, their ally? And, and one of the things, like I never, I always kind of had some different ideas trying to figure that out. And then Obama got elected. And it wasn't hard to figure out anymore. I was like, oh, well, okay, now finally for the first time, I, I, I kind of understand why, is, why the United States won't come during the Gog and Magog invasion to Israel's side. Because we have a president who, for the first time in our history, that's, that's not pro-Israeli and is not pro-Jew, is not going to defend him. And now he's gone and Trump's in and pr- Trump is, for the most part, pro-Israeli. And, and his daughter is married to, to a Jew. And um, you would think, and, and they, he's raising his grand, they're raising their, his grandkids as, um, as Jews. And um, so you would think that he would stand in their defense. But we don't come. I want to show you guys, that's what this next clip is. I want to show you guys. Um, a clip this week of something the president said, and then I want to talk about the, um, I want to talk about the, a short time, the United Arab Emirates. I, I want to, I want to talk about, um, well, well, Qatar, Egypt first. and others can ensure that Iran does not profit from the eradication of ISIS. America does not seek an indefinite presence in Syria under no circumstances. As other nations step up their contributions, we look forward to the day when we can bring our warriors home, and great warriors they are. Looking around our very troubled world, Americans have no illusions. We cannot purge the world of evil or act everywhere there is tyranny. No amount of American blood or treasure can produce lasting peace and security in the Middle East. It's a troubled place. We will try to make it better, but it is a troubled place. The United States will be a partner and a friend, but the fate of the region lies in the hands of its own people. The fate of the region lies in the hands of its own people. The, the Middle East is a troubled place, he said. He's right. No amount of American blood will bring peace to the Middle East. Let me tell you something. He's right. No amount of American blood, and I'm not defending his position, but I'm telling you that, um, that, the, that the position of the United States as we stand. And he said earlier this week in another clip, I don't have time to show you. He said that um, unless there's uh, chemical weapons used, we're not going to be involved. We wouldn't be bombing Syria right now. The 70 people, we, we bombed Syria this week because 70 people died, but it's not about the 70 people that died. It's about the chemical weapons because 2 million, all kinds of other problems all over. But what he said was, if they're using conventional weapons and foes are fighting foes, we're not going to be involved. <clears throat> 
And so the, um, you know, that drone strike on Israel was conventional weapon. The United States wasn't going to do anything about it. He said that Israel's got to defend themselves. And one of the things that Israel understands very clearly is that they stand alone. Now, let me tell you something about the resolve of the Jewish people. They're not afraid. They, they, they know their God's going to stand for them. A good thing the Bible says that the God of Israel will neither sleep nor slumber and that our God will fight for us. But Israel is going to stand alone. They know they're going to stand alone. They're ready to stand alone, but we won't be there. So that helps understand. You know, the other thing that I thought about why the United States doesn't help. Now, nowhere in the Bible can you really find, find the United States. I mean, we just read Egypt, um, Persia, Gog, Magog, like really simple who those countries are and really easy to understand. Nowhere can you find the United States in biblical prophecy. Now, why is it that the that today, if all this stuff is unfolding, Isaiah 17, 1, Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, right before our eyes, how is the how is the world's military and economic superpower not even mentioned player in any of these scenarios that we're reading about? Now, something cripples the United States. Something keeps us. Now, one place that Oh, some people, you, they, they say the, the merchants, the young merchants. Oh, that's that, the young lions. That's the United States, the young lions. But you've you got to stretch to put the United States in that prophecy as young lions. We don't fit. There's only one place where I kind of see maybe possibly the United States. In Daniel chapter 11, one of the things we have to understand, this is totally side note, um, the Antichrist, who, who is ruling the world, who is dominating, has enemies. Not 100% of the people that are here are following the Antichrist. And the Bible describes scenes where the Antichrist is having battles on earth with other people. And, and those other people are fighting back. And it's possible that that group that's fighting the Antichrist that's list, listed in Daniel chapter 11, that those are made up of Americans and, and, and American soldiers or American people that are against um, people of the West that are against Antichrist. Other than that, I don't see America in biblical prophecy anywhere. Now, a couple ideas. Number one, um, during all this time, Jesus is going to come for the church. And the church is going to be raptured and the bride of Christ is going to go to heaven. What country in the world would most be affected by the rapture of the bride of Christ? The United States. You, you think of our infrastructure. You know, I, as, as you know, I have a history that the church that I was at for 15 years before this one was really close to the largest Marine base in the world. And we have lots of, lots of dealings with Marines. And believe me, many, 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 many high-ranking Marines were, were integral parts of our Calvary Chapel Church back home. And they're going, they're the bride of Christ. And so you take key military positions, you take pilots, you take infrastructure, you take, you know, a mass amount of people out of the United States. And then the second idea, and don't let this one scare you, this is just me thinking, this is not Bible at all, but is if, if Russia, when, not if, when Russia and Iran and Turkey um, attack Israel, they, they, they're probably going to expect that the United States is going to help. And so maybe if it's not done through political lines and back doors where they have the assurance from us that we won't help, maybe there's a preemptive strike on the United States, you know, nuclear or limited nuclear or some kind of, you know, that, that EMP scare thing over the United States that cripples us anyways. And, and maybe the United States is not a player because we've been taken out by a preemptive strike before Iran and Russia and Turkey make the final move into Israel. And that's, again, just me talking crazy possibility. But we're not, we're not listed. Now, this is a question that comes up a lot on this topic. 
um, the Gog and Magog invasion? Will the rapture of the church happen before or after the, the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 37, 38, uh, 38, 39? So um, the answer is it could happen in either place. Okay, there's good, good opinion on both sides of the matter. Now, unequivocally, without a doubt, the, the rapture of the church happens before the seven-year tribulation begins. We will not be here for the tribulation. We're dogmatic about that. We're, 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 we're matter of fact that we're pre-trib. It's got to be that way. It's the only scenario that fits or makes sense. And so that much is true. But, but as far as when the Gog and Magog invasion happens, will we see part of it? Will, will under the smoke screen of, of this scale of war that maybe comes to the United States in different places and, and with the maybe some kind of attack here in the United States and maybe we get some kind of, you know, God said in a blink and a twinkling of an eye and, the, you know, that we'll be taken. And maybe, you know, some say that, that it could be a week or, or, or a period of time before the rest of the world starts to realize what happened and that people are gone all over the world. And maybe under some kind of military strike or attack, the church is taken and, and then it takes a little bit longer for the world to realize what's happening. And so, um, but it, it, it could happen. We could see the beginning part of it. We could see the end part of it. Now, Daniel 9.27, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to skip this one, you guys. But um, 9.27, it says that Antichrist, you can look it up, take a note, that Antichrist is going to make a seven-year peace treaty with the nation of Israel. Okay, so some point um, the anti right around all this happens, um, then the Antichrist is raised up and revealed and he makes a seven year peace treaty with Israel. Daniel 927. A lot of people, myself included, believe that that marks the, the timetable or starts the clock on the seven years. So from that treaty, three and a half years, years later, what can we know is going to happen? He's going to go into the Jewish temple and he's going to declare himself as God. And the Jews are going to realize that they've been duped and they're going to flee to the rock city Petra, which is located in Amman, Jordan. And they're, they're, they're leaving and going to, um, to, to hide there. And then in the second three and a half years of the seven year tribulation period, that's detailed for us in revelation chapter five through 19 is the great tribulation. The second half is called the great tribulation. Technically, the first half of the tribulation, second half, great tribulation. And then during that time, God will spare and will protect the Jews in Petra for, um, for three and a half years. So um, let, let's just kind of close with or look at um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. If you want to turn there with me, 1 Thessalonians 4. I heard that the uh, um, maybe not. <laughs> I'll be I'll be cool. I'll be cool. I'll be nice, Daddy. I'll be nice. Um, somebody was in Israel this week and they were scared and they left. That's all I'll say. And they should have known they didn't need to be scared. They should have known they didn't need to be scared because the safest place in the world to be is going to be in Israel. But if you were the prophet of God, you'd probably know that. All right. Um, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says, 
but I do not want you to be ignorant. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, you're not ignorant. Hey, God don't want you to be ignorant. There's several places in the Bible where God says this. So listen, if God tells you, I don't want you to be ignorant. Okay, that, that should motivate you a little bit. I hope it don't insult you too bad. He doesn't want you to be ignorant about these things. Four things in the New Testament, I'll let you find them, that God doesn't want you to be ignorant about. You know the four areas where the church struggles the most today? Those exact four areas that the New Testament says he doesn't want you to be ignorant about. But this one is concerning the rapture. He doesn't want you to be ignorant concerning the rapture. And he said, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And that's why, you know, we say at the trumpet call of God that that church will happen. And we're listening for the trumpet. It's called it's also coincides this this the rapture coincides with the feast of trumpets in Israel. They blow the shofar on on uh, on on the feast of trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets in Israel, by the way, is coming up in September. And that's why you always get all this rapture prediction stuff around the Feast of Trumpets. Because the Feast of Trumpets is the, the Jewish feast that's going to coincide with the next prophetic event biblically that needs to be fulfilled, which is the rapture. And so it's called the feast that no one knows the day or the hour. That's what the Jews call it. And they don't believe in Jesus. But the reason why the, the Feast of Trumpets is the feast that nobody knows the day or the hour is because two separate rabbis in different parts of Israel, in order to confirm that it is, in fact, Rosh Hashanah, they have to go out and they have to measure the moon with the thumb. And, and then when they both confirm that, that because it's a lunar calendar and that, that it, if in fact, is the day, they confirm it and they come together. And when it's confirmed, the shofar is blown. But nobody knows the day or the hour because if the priest comes out and it's cloudy and it, he can't see the moon and he can't make the measurement, then they have to wait until the next day. And so that's still the custom to this day in Israel um, around the Jewish festival of Rosh Hashanah. So, um, hey, I, I knew there was something that I, I was forgetting and I skipped that I, I didn't want to skip. But um, I, I got to go back just for a minute. Now, it, it's the key to what we're talking about today, so I can't miss it. Um, we attacked, um, how many missiles, Brian, did, we, did you say? 105 um, missiles that we fired into Damascus, Syria this week on Friday. One of the questions that people are asking, one of the questions I wanted to answer today was what will Iran and Russia and Turkey do in response to us sending those rockets in? President Putin had said early in the week that if one Russian soldier dies, it's an act of war against Russia. Now, I, I want to tell you what Iran and, and Russia and Turkey are going to do as a result. My opinion. Absolutely nothing. And I'm going to tell you why. Because what the United States did this week, and again, you guys just take this with a grain of salt. Okay, this is just my opinion. This is not Bible, so you don't agree with me. Let's agree to disagree and move on. Um, but... What the United States did this week was absolutely nothing. It was useless. It was a smokescreen. It was puffing out our chest and doing nothing. We started this week with, with the chemical attack in Syria. 
And immediately it began with who's responsible for the chemical attack. Maybe it wasn't even Bashar al-Assad and, and, you know, and all that nonsense. When it's Russian wep- weapons and, and when, and when it's, 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 you know, without spending too much time on it, it's, it's Syria. It's, it's Bashar al-Assad who drops these weapons. So we get past that. And then we, we decide Mattis. He gets on a general, our secretary of defense. He gets on a bullet train and, and he flies as fast as he can to the White House early in the week. And he comes to President Trump and he says, President Trump, if you do this, you will start World War III and you will be known as the president who starts World War III. And the, re- and the president begins to rethink his strategy. And then France and, and who, who else is with us? Great Britain calls and they tell President Trump, you, we're only going to be a part is if you only target chemical weapon sites and you keep Russia in the loop. Why? Because the, the Europe is deathly afraid of Russia. Russia, they, nobody wants a nuclear war with Russia. Russia could go down right now and swipe down the whole bottom part of Georgia and all those countries in one fell swoop. And and nobody in NATO, all those NATO countries, and nobody would stop them because they're afraid of a nuclear war with Russia. And I forget how many nuclear warheads Russia has, but it's a ton. And and so France and Great Britain say, we're not going to be any part of this unless it's limited and you let Russia know. So then Mattis comes back and he has another conversation with the president. They rethink their strategy and they reannounce. He realized why it took so long for us to respond. So then, then we call Russia and, and we tell Putin exactly where we're going to bomb, when we're going to bomb and who we're going to, and how, and how many bombs we're going to send. Now, I, I don't know if you guys noticed, but Putin and Bashar al-Assad, uh, they share an office. They're, they're kind of buddies. You're, you're telling me you're going to get it, you're going to get a message to Russia, to Putin that's not going to go directly to Bashar al-Assad. Syria knew exactly when we were coming and where we were going to hit, and had 48 hours to move all that stuff out of there. And and then we sent 105 missiles in. Guess how many Syrians we killed in the attack? Why? How do you how do you bomb a city of Damascus with 105 missiles and kill nobody? Because they knew we were coming. How many weapons do you think we destroyed? None. They weren't there. The buildings were empty. Maybe they say that that the buildings were being used to produce the weapons. They bombed a bunch of airstrips that they said maybe that was successful. That that were being used to um, fly the weapons. But it was a joke. And that message that, that Trump said there. That the Middle East is on their own. And the message we just sent this week in Syria is a joke. We did nothing. We, we, we played war. We, we really didn't send a message to anybody but the citizens of the United States. What did we tell Iran and Russia and the rest of them about what we're going to do? I don't get it. How do, you, how do you tell somebody exactly where you're going to bomb and what to, you know, when it's coming? And that's, that was the strategy, and that's the way it ended up. It made France happy. It made Great Britain happy. It made the public opinion of the world happy. But militarily, in support of Israel and in, in real um, accomplishing something in Syria, we didn't do a whole lot. And, and, and we, didn't, we didn't save a lot of face either. We didn't. So, anyways, that was that. So, 
I forgot that part in the last note, so I wanted to go back to it. So again, just my opinion, you guys, maybe you have a different opinion about what we did and how it affected and what's good for and not. And again, let's just agree to disagree and move on on that one. But um, let's look at where were we um, first, and then we're almost done, you guys promise. First Thessalonians chapter four, we're in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. So God's going to come with the trumpet on the feast of trumpets um, with a president called Trump. But I'm not looking for a president to save me called Trump. I'm looking for the trumpet call of God. I'm looking for Jesus. And then it says, um, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Listen, and then us, if we're the generation that's going to see the rapture, then we who are alive and remain shall be, verse 17, somebody say, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're going to meet the Lord. The Bible tells us specifically in the clouds. I love that. It's going to be this like meeting in the clouds. And that's where we're going to meet the Lord first, where all the bride of Christ is going to go before we go up from there. And it says, um, you know, as we meet him in the clouds. Now, some people say, oh, the word rapture, that's not in the Bible. Well, the word Bible ain't in the Bible either. There's lots of words that ain't in the Bible. And if you don't like the word rapture, it's then use the word caught up. But if you if you live in South America and you have a Latin Bible, you read a Latin Bible, then the word rapture is in your Bible. Because this word here in Thessalonians that says caught up that I asked you guys to read with me. The word caught up, the Greek word is harpazo, which translated into Latin is araptus or something close to that, um, which means rapture. And so the same idea, it doesn't matter whether it's semantics, whether you like, don't like the word rapture, the idea, the word is in the Bible that we're going to be caught up and we're going to meet the Lord. And it tells us specifically where we're going to meet him in the clouds. And then he says, comfort one another with these words. And then at the end of chapter or at the middle of chapter five, he's going to say the same thing again. And so I want to um, encourage you. And with all these things that are going on, you guys, the, for us as Christians, we're to be encouraged with these words. So let's read a couple more verses and then we'll end with this. Chapter five says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why, why would he say that? But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should tell you. Because you should already know. Because Jesus, because the times and the seasons and the idea that we should know those things is, is, is a kind of a foregone conclusion from Paul by this point. That, that by now you should see the sign of the times and know that you're living in the days of Noah, as Jesus said. You're living in the days that Jesus said would be the days that he would return. You know, you know the, um, the world clock, the world doomsday clock was just moved up this June to two minutes to midnight. That's not Christian or anything you have to do with evangelicals. It's a nuclear society that sets the doomsday clock. And this June, they moved it up to two minutes to midnight. And so even the world and all over the world, right? There's always been for years now, as God is trying to begin to get the attention of you and I in the world, that something is afoot, something is a brew. And all over the world, there's this buzz. And, and, the, and the point is, as Paul's going to say here is to be ready. And then he says in verse number two, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. 
But you, brethren, are in darkness so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Watch and pray, Jesus said, right? In verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Somebody say amen. amen. That's your verse, you guys. 5-9 for pre-tribulation rapture. It's one of the strongest cases for biblical cases for pre-tribulation rapture. God did not appoint you to wrath. Okay? You read Revelation chapter 5 through 19, which details seven years. The first thing that happens in the great apocalypse, in the tribulation, is the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride in Revelation chapter 6. And I guarantee you that is the wrath of of God. And there's no way we'll be here for it. There's no way we'll see it. So we have to go up before that. And it says, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, we should live, live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are doing. Amen. Hey, listen, this is no time to be carousing around, sleeping around, living in drunkenness, living in debauchery. This is a time to be ready for the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a time to get your hearts and your lives right with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are living in days that the Bible absolutely talks about the eminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't make us fanatical. It doesn't make us, you know... Jesus freaks. And let me tell you, if someone accused me of being a Jesus freak, I'd give him a high five. <laughs> and it, does, it, it makes us Bible people to know that Jesus is coming back. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Have the worship team come on up and, and close us in a song. We'll worship the Lord. Hey, I want to give you guys an opportunity as we do each week to make sure that your heart and life is, is right with the Lord. Don't start moving yet. You guys pause where you are. Okay, the worship team moves. Everybody else just stay put for a minute. If you really got to go to the bathroom, I get it. But at this point in the service, it's not time to be moving around just yet, okay? This is the most important part of the service, okay? So if you need an opportunity to give the, your life to the Lord, if you're here today and God spoke to you apart from anything that I said, but God's Holy Spirit has been calling you and you know that it's time to respond, you know it's time to come forward, you know that... You've been being called for a while and you just haven't stepped out. Today's the day that God's calling you to say yes to Jesus. Today's the day that God is calling you to ask Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior and get your life right with God. It's not God's will that any should perish. And God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And the invitation is to all those who would believe. And salvation is simple, you guys. I know we live in a community and a place that does a really good job of confusing what it means to be a Christian in salvation. And don't let that confuse you today. Just know that the Bible says that it's true. And I want to testify it's absolutely true. Paul says that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And it's that simple. And so we want everybody to pray in here today. I want everybody with all eyes open, with all heads up, because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. 
And I want to ask you today, if you want to ask Jesus in your heart, if you want to get your life right with God, just in front of everybody, because nobody's ashamed of Jesus, I want you to raise your hand up. Amen, amen. What I want to ask today is that we just all pray out loud together. And just so that there is somebody that's new, that they can feel comfortable in praying. And let's, let's pray together and just ask God to, to get our lives right with the Lord. So let's, let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you that the Bible tells us about prophecy. We know that we need a Savior. And we ask you to come into our hearts and be our Lord and Savior. Forgive us of our sins. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We believe that you died on a cross and rose again the third day. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, one song, you guys, too, and and I know we went over, but it's your fault you told me to. Um, But again, you know, this this end part of the service, and and again, I I didn't mean to offend anybody today, but I wanted to be serious that, and I want to create a little better culture in here because we're we're not that good in it as a church, that when when we get to that point, everybody just starts going crazy, and it gets hard for, for people to focus. And if God is speaking to somebody, it can be a little bit of a distraction. So we'd appreciate it. And again, I'm not trying to, you guys do what you got to do, really. But um, it, it just for that part. And and one song at the end to just worship the Lord. And, and as the song plays, if you got to go, please feel free to go. But one song. And during this song, if 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 God did speak to your heart today and you want to pray, um, Ben's up to pray with people. Shane and Abby are going to be up to pray with folks. I'm going to be up to pray with folks. We'd love to pray with you and just encourage you. And you could tell somebody, you know, that, that you asked Jesus in your heart. Or if you need prayer, we'd love to meet those needs. That's what church is about. We're here to here to love each other, meet each other's needs, and to, to reach out. And this part of the service is really important. And sometimes we get a little rushed at the end to get out of here and beat the Methodists to the restaurant. I get it, you know. We've got to get there before the Baptist church does. I, I know, you know, but... But one more song. And then I want to invite everybody. Um, sometimes questions come up in a sermon like that in a prophecy update. Sometimes comments. I knew it would be hard to do a Q&A at the end with the whole everybody here because some people get embarrassed and stuff. So if you have any questions or had any questions, we're going to sing one song. We're going to pray for folks. And then um, I'm going to be up front. And um, if you want to, I'll stay as long as it needs to be. But if anybody has any Q&A questions, I'd like to try to get them all together. Because if somebody had, one person had the question, Maybe a lot of people had the same question. So we can, we can talk for a few minutes after church, after this song, if you'd like, and love for you to stay. Okay? Amen? Love you guys. God bless you guys.